Gavin. Hey, Louie. Um, okay, I'm going to try my best to tell this joke that I thought I had, but like, if I fuck it up, that's just the way it is. Okay. Yeah. That's called comedy. This is live. You guys know that? <laughs> Completely uh, unedited, very live, all the time. I was going to say, are you good to go? Are you good to go? <laughs> it, took me, it took me a moment. I'm good to go. I'm, I'm good, good to, to go. go. I'm good to go. Okay, we're both good to go. Bless. Um, I'm excited, Gavin, that it's an original flavor today. It's you and me, babe. It's just us. Just uh, the two of us. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sing anymore because I don't want to be sued. Just the two of us. <laughs> people, are you, the, the people are very litigious around here. Very really litigious. Are. Especially for like... Um, all the crimes that you've committed, <laughs> all the great, specifically the crimes against I've committed. humankind, um, <laughs> non-humankind, ju- really <laughs> yeah. just anything that moves, <laughs> anything that doesn't move, genuinely <laughs> the worst. <laughs> hey everyone, this is the Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast where we take a film subject, such as an actor, director, or a mini genre, and we take two weeks, we watch as much as we can, do a ton of research, and then we come back and we're like, "Hey, you want to learn some stuff?" Hey. And- Hey, 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 open our coats. Be like, there's yeah. learning inside here. Yeah. You want one of these? Do you, do you like movies? Are you like a little bit gay or not? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. want to talk about it? Want to talk about it? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and guys, there's a lot of fun um, things on the horizon for the mixed reviews. They're and, tr- yeah. And, and for you and for you all, too. There truly is. It's a. Uh, it's a very strange time for us here at the Mixed Reviews, and not strange in a bad way, strange in a good way, strange in a, like, oh, I, I don't know why I turned into Judy Garland all of a sudden. Oh, oh. <laughs> the shoulders. <laughs> That's my Judy. No? Not great? You're no Alexis Michelle. No. <laughs> but who could be? <laughs> oh, man. That's the last time you tell me I'm no Alexis Michelle. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's hurtful. <laughs> Uh, what a strange time this is our last episode (laughs) goodbye (laughs) goodbye (laughs) so yeah we are workshopping a couple ideas here at the mixed reviews uh first of all if you follow us on any social media platform such as twitter and or tiktok you've seen that our videos have taken a drastically different direction and one of those things is you know i had a meeting with louis and louis like people need to see your face gavin Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. as a side effect they need to see louis face too i guess but but he was like, you, Gavin. If you. I must, I must. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're, we've just talked about, like, you know, what are some of, like, how can we shake up the show a little bit? How can we bring in some more audience members? Uh, we're also tinkering with, like, how to streamline the show. Um, your time is precious, and we appreciate it. So, yeah, just, like, some little things here and there. You might see our faces a little bit more. The episodes might be a little shorter. We are... Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Who who can never be sure? Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and also the biggest news, perhaps, Gavin, uh, is we are tinkering with the idea of a Patreon. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's correct. And while neither Louie or I do this as, like, a get rich quick scheme obviously we've been doing it for five years for free but it does feel like it's maybe time to broaden our horizons and bring it's you maybe guys time yeah, yeah bring it's new time we love everyone for listening and if you want to support us please do that but also if you just want to listen just listen and that's okay too 
Absolutely. The nothing about the show is changing. There will be no change in terms of the content that we're delivering to you. So that is all like none of that's on the table. Don't worry about that. But we just thought that this is maybe a move that can better help us out and also maybe create a slight bit more of a community for our listeners. Yeah. Um and also Gavin's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Goodbye. You t- you tell me that you you said the Alexis Michelle thing again. <laughs> I saw it in your face. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, all these good things um, just help the show last longer. Hopes um, you know builds a nice little community where we can talk and um, just love movies and have fun together. So that's all that I guess. That's kind of like new business. Yeah. Right. New old business. New old business. Um, just to catch you guys up where we are at, um, I believe we have a, a comment. A review. A review. <laughs> this review is not mixed. Now, if you recall, I've been trying to get us to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts before the year is out, before the start of 2023. We only have five or six episodes left of 2022. Uh, believe me, I've done the counting. And we're only at 82, which means we're at one more than we were last time. But I did want to read this review because it's very nice. Uh, This review comes from Megabrain Comics. It says, The Mixed Reviews is now a new favorite. Great production quality, great conversations and insight, and Gavin and Louie are great fun to listen to. Really looking forward to diving into their archives. Wonder if they'll ever talk about Christy McNichols, the pirate movie. Emoji that looks like this. (laughs) For those at home, that's the like thinking emoji. Right, 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 right. Okay, so I don't know the reference. I do, uh, but I've never seen it. I know it mostly by reputation. Hopefully we'll come across it someday, but we've we've never had an actor who's intersected with the pirate movie yet. So unfortunately, it has not come up. Pirate movies is a good mini-genre, though. Yeah. it's It's a lot, but... Is it, I mean, is it more than anything? I mean, we did body swap comedies. <laughs> like, sometimes they're yeah, big. We did Diane Keaton, okay? Like, yeah, nothing, we <laughs> nothing will be as, or Nicole Kidman, hello. Since it's signed Mega Brain Comics, Mega Brain Comics is in Rhinebeck, New York. If you're ever in Rhinebeck, New York, stop by there. Give them a perusal, buy some comics, buy some figures, buy something from them. It's great. I have never had the pleasure of going because I've never really been to Rhinebeck. But I should where, fix that. Where is Rhinebeck? It's north. It's like okay. between where I'm from and New York City, where I live. Which, if you do the math on that, yeah. is it's geography. Okay, well, thank you, Mega Brain Comics. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, please get into those archives, okay? We love when folks just dive into those archives and find a new fave, find someone that they're really into, and um, take the ride with us. Uh, before we start um, on our new subject for this episode... We also want to go back, back, back again for our uh, Twitter poll from our last episode, which we had the lovely Alex Brizard uh, from The Circle, um, villainess himself, <laughs> uh, self-proclaimed, uh, to talk about the Disney Bronze Age. Um, what a fun little ep. Uh, we asked you guys to vote on what your favorite uh, movie was, and here are the results. Uh, this was a kind of like a, a, a horse race. Girlies were coming and going, okay? Yeah, for a long time, I thought it was going to be a very different result. Yeah. Uh, So, okay, we got... In last place was The Rescuers at 17%. Um, 
In third place was Winnie the Pooh at 18%. That was my pick. Uh, And then the Aristocats at 27%. And then the Great Mouse Detective with 38% came out on top. Can you imagine? Did you see this coming, Kevin? I did not. Uh, For a long time, it looked like The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was going to take it all the way home. And then suddenly, the next day, it was like Great Mouse Detective, Aristocats, like coming up from behind. I thought Aristocats was going to take it just because in my brain, that is the most well-known yeah. of the Bronze Age movies. But who knew? Great Mouse Detectives have some stands out there. And we did get some comments. We certainly got some for, you know, Chell's was Justice for Fox and the Hound, to which I say, give it a rewatch. Nor. Yeah, give it a rewatch, girl. <laughs> Chell's, we love you so much, but incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for playing. Uh, And yeah, so I I think that episode was so much fun, though, because that is, I think, next to the Renaissance, the most fascinating period in all of Disney history. And then maybe that like weird period that comes after the Renaissance. So who knows? Someday in the future, we may get to that. Um, I also have to issue a correction on behalf of my um, very aggressive Stan <laughs> sister who called me and said in the Aristocats, in fact, three cats are not stolen. It is four. I forgot about Dutch. I didn't forget about Duchess. I just wasn't like including her, but whatever. Duchess, the mom, she is also in the mix. Um, she just had a lot of feelings about Aristocats. She had just recently watched it. Um, Corey, I see you. I hear you for to all the Aristocats out there. The, the Arista stands, if you will. I'm I'm so sorry if, if I hurt you in any way. <laughs> to uh, Louis, I said earlier, I caught it when we were recording the episode, and I was like, eh, I'm not going to correct him. Meh, then, and fine. then, turns Who out, and then, I was wrong. You're wrong. Um, but okay, moving on from the Bronze Age. Thank you so much, everyone, for that episode. Thank you to Alex. We're moving right ahead, though, into this week's episode. Gavin, who are we talking about? The special effects wizard, maybe one of the last, like, Hollywood directors, the one, the only, Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis, yes. Um, A name that I can't hear without being like, okay, what whimsical shit's about to happen in this movie? (laughs) Oh, is it the great American novel, but the movie version? See, that's where my brain goes. I don't always think of whimsy, which is funny because he does actually have quite a whimsical career. I would say, you know, obviously, I think the Back to the Future trilogy is maybe one of the most well-known bits. And that's maybe not as whimsical, but it is fun and fantastical. But then you get into like the... the... I I love that you're delineating like whimsical and fun and fantastical. there is a hard line between whimsical and... If you're being whimsy... But you're not being fantastic. That's two different things. Okay. Exactly. Uh, I believe I'm correct on this. I believe uh, my friend Miriam Webster <laughs> will agree with me. Okay. My father, Miriam Webster. <laughs> oh, have you never met my cousin, Oxford English? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think he le- has led such an inter- interesting career. I think a lot of people think of him like solely either as like a big tech guy or solely as like a Spielberg acolyte. But I feel mm. like there's uh, room in there, especially that like 80s, 90s period where he's very much a singular beast. And I do mean beast. He is making these big films. Yeah. And, and pulling them off in a way that I don't think other directors were, but it's very Hollywood. Yeah, it's 
aggressively Hollywood. Um, what is the movie that, and I, I'm pretty sure I picked this, or at least said it was one of my favorites from John Waters, where they're like shitting on um, Forrest Gump. Um, oh, it's um, it's uh, Cecil B. Demented. Cecil B. Demented, which is excellent. Um, is this shitting on Forrest Gump? Because everyone in Hollywood just wants to make another Forrest Gump or, you know, in that same kind of stratosphere. It's, you know, and it was funny to watch his movies and kind of see like, oh, yeah, I guess his career was literally after Forrest Gump, like him trying to make Forrest Gump like movies again or kind of kooky, whimsical, fantastical kid things where things are glittering and magic and 3D and uh, tech heavy stuff. And and everybody wore a body stocking with a bunch of balls on it while they made it. Yes. I'm looking at you, Marwin. Yes. Like it's (laughs) a lot of, it's just weird. And especially going back to his early, early stuff where it's kind of almost um, giving me dazed and confused vibes, you know, like it's just kind of characters doing antics, um, in these tight little stories, but then, it, yeah, it's it's such a he has um, layers and sectors, his eras, if you will, um, and so it's, it was really interesting to go through this. I I wasn't super familiar with a lot of his movies, um, but that's what this show is about, babe. <laughs> like I was very happy to find. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't very happy to see Beowulf, but it was fun. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't revisit that. We, I watched it when we did the Angelina Jolie episode and was like, I'm good. Not I. I was like, huh, maybe I should finally watch Beowulf. Uh, yeah. Maybe you I'll, shouldn't. But, but also, I, I would argue you should just because, you know, who knew I needed to see something that looked like Shrek, but like rated R. Because <laughs> that's what that movie is. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was a really interesting watch. Because typically when we do these episodes, there's like kind of like a a, a regular flow, you know, people yeah. like doing what they're doing. This was just kind of like all over the place. Yeah, very uh, scattershot. Yeah, but everyone knows his movies, you know. Every, I, to me, in my head, Robert Zemeckis is just like, oh, what Christmas movie is this guy making now, you know? <laughs> I it, it is funny because I do think that he – it's surprising to me – that his name isn't more often said like with the like eighties greats and the nineties right. greats. And I think people look at his films and they and they know them. Right. But I, I think there is something that keeps them at a distance. But you know, I have my opinions on it, you have your opinions on it. Why don't we get into our rewind and talk a little bit about the history and some of the other films he's made? Robert Lee Zemeckis was born on May 14th, 1952, in the south side of Chicago. His mother, Rosa, and his father, Alphonse Zemeckis. His father was a Lithuanian-American, while his mother was Italian-American. He said, you know, grew up very... This feels a lot like the Colin Farrell upbringing that we were talking about. Mm. Like, very uncultured. He said, you know, there was... (laughs) Uncultured swine. (laughs) The, no, but I mean, he said that there was no books, no music, no theater, you know, was it their family wasn't about art. And the only thing that he really had for his sort of escapism was the television. And he, you know, he said over the years, a lot of people give television a lot of shit for not, you know, for like poisoning the minds. He's like, 
television raised me. I am here because television put me here. Amen, honey. Yes. <laughs> I know Pop what off. I know what it's like to be a latchkey kid, so <laughs> I get it. And he was also fascinated by his parents' 8mm film home movie camera. And so he would start doing things like filming birthdays and holidays. And then he began like doing his own narrative films. And sometimes there would be stop motion involved and other special effects. He literally said, I think TV saved my life. Yeah, I, I literally just said that, didn't I? No, you said that he like loved it a lot. You didn't say it saved his life. He like never even knew there was this thing called film school until he was watching Johnny Carson. His guest that night is Jerry Lewis. In the 60s, he was like the Spielberg of the, of the movie industry. He had like total autonomy over making his movies. So Johnny says, hey, Jerry, I hear you're teaching school at a university. He goes, yeah, I'm teaching at the USC Cinema School. And I went, cinema school? I thought, wow, there's a place where you can actually learn cinema. And he was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Also, at the time, he took his father to go see Bonnie and Clyde in theaters. Now, we recently talked about Bonnie and Clyde in our Warren Beatty episode. Yes. Oh, and I talked my, my father into taking me to see the movie. And there's a scene, if you remember, when um, Gene Hackman gets shot in the head. And he's dying in this field. And that's the first time that I remember having this profound sense of sadness because I had fallen in love with these, you know, these beautiful bank robber characters. And now they're starting to die in this really ugly way. And I felt um, extremely um, moved by that and saddened by that. And I remember having this feeling right at that moment watching that movie that there's some marvelous power here that I had never experienced before. And well, my fuse was lit and I had to find out how this was done. And then I really started to research and understand what a writer did and what a director did and how something like this could, could be so moving in a movie. And so from that moment on, I decided that I had to be a, a movie director. So he goes to his parents and he tells them, hey, I wanna go to film school. And his parents are like, no fucking way. <laughs> no. You thought? <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> um, and he was essentially like his parents are blue collar people. They're like, this is not a real job. This is not anything that you're going to be successful at. And they. Classic hit, Italian ex. And his, and his parents literally said, quote, don't you see where you come from? You can't be a movie director. Yikes. And so he was like, not only am I going to do this for me, I'm going to do this in spite of them take Which, that yeah um he first attends northern illinois university and started gaining experience with film as a film cutter for nbc news in chicago during his summer breaks he also edited commercials while he was home and he applied to transfer to the usc school of cinematic arts in los angeles uh to go to film school and they he gets in by sending them a music video he cuts for a beatles song but then they're like no, not so fast. Your grades are terrible. You cannot huh. come. And so what he does is he calls the admissions office and he's like, hey, I need to be in film school. Like, I need this. If I can get my grades up, I promise I will work harder. Would you please let me in? And, you know, I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in miracles. This admissions officer was like, let's do it. Wow. The full L. Woods. Yeah. And uh, he gets to film school and all he sees is a bunch of what he calls, quote unquote, hippies. 
Uh-huh. Um, and he said that they're all embarrassed to be in film school. That none of oh them want none of them want to make these big Hollywood movies. They want to make these indie films. And he's like, ugh, what? Low budgets? I, ugh. I, I feel like this is leaning and I I know nothing about this man's political beliefs, but it's just he's like, um, this doesn't feel like real America to me. Which is you guys funny. are making real movies to me. Which is so funny Fucking because hippies. Because Steven Spielberg later calls him a film anarchist, and I was like, "Is this, this is Steven? Sp- yeah, this is Steven Spielberg's idea of a film anarchist. Like, has Steven Spielberg seen a John Waters movie? Uh, has, <laughs> has he seen Castaway? Like, what the fuck <laughs> are you talking about? Um, and so the the professors are constantly telling the students how hard the movie business is, and Zemeckis is like, "I'm not phased by." this because i grew uh, bitch i'm from chicago mystique summers madison exactly spirit came through him he said the graduate students at usc had this veneer of intellectualism but he meets fellow student bob gale who is later becomes a writer with uh zemeckis writes a lot of his co-writes a lot of his projects and also produces a lot of them and he's like we gravitated towards each other because we wanted to make Hollywood movies. We weren't interested in the French New Wave. We were interested in Clint Eastwood and James Bond and Walt Disney because that's how we grew up. I agree in that, like, yeah, I grew up with this, but, like, the way he's saying this is very, yeah. like... It's pretty aggro. It's so, like, <laughs> mask-like. Basically being like, oh, you film fucking nerds. <laughs> like, it's it's as if, like... Could you be a film nerd jock? Robert Zemeckis said, watch me. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Um, so he graduates from USC in 1973, and him and Gail co-wrote a ton of unproduced screenplays, including Tank and a little film called Bordello of Blood. Hmm. Um, something that he doesn't make, but eventually gets made in the 90s as a Tales from the Crypt movie starring uh, Dennis Miller. It's not good. Don't worry. <laughs> but we did briefly mention it because there's a Whoopi Goldberg cameo in it. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you go way back into the archives, you'll find that episode. Before he leaves school, though, he does make a film called A Field of Honor, which actually receives the Student Academy Award. Wow. Which is presented to him by William Friedkin. So like he, Casual. yeah, it's a big deal. And this film gains the attention of Steven Spielberg. Essentially, Steven Spielberg comes to speak to the school and Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale go to the screening of his film Sugarland Express and they love it. And then they see this guy who's like in his 20s and they're like, oh, fuck, that's what <laughs> I want. I want that. And so they essentially... The story goes that Zemeckis barged past Spielberg's secretary and into his office and was like, you need to see my student film and showed him his film. And Spielberg's like, it's great. You're and great. Spielberg was like, sir, get out of my office. What <laughs> <Yeah>. the fuck? <laughs> it's, it was all set to one of Spielberg's favorite scores, which is Elmer Bernstein's score to The Great Escape. And Steven Spielberg agrees to become his mentor and eventually his executive producer on his first two films, which Bob Gale co-writes. And those two films are I Want to Hold Your Hand in 1978 and Use Cars in 1980. I watched both of these films. I've seen both of these films before. I think what's really impressive about I Want to Hold Your Hand is how well he starts sort of his bread and butter, which is the integration of archive footage with faked bits 
of things that are going on. I want to hold your hand is a movie about young girls trying to get into the Ed Sullivan show to see the Beatles. And he incorporates actual footage from the Ed Sullivan show, as well as recreations with stand-ins. And this is something he's going to be doing for a lot of his career, uh-huh. but to a much greater degree later on. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of I Want to Hold Your Hand? Yeah, it gave me Richard Linklater vibes, you know, and I don't know if they know each other or if Linklater was inspired by him. Or influenced I mean, by him. definitely different generations. So, yeah, like I, it, it's it's because the plot is just like it is one thing, you know, it, and for the entire hour and a half, two hours, whatever, like these girlies are just doing whatever they can to, in a short amount of time. You know, it's it's not like it's literally takes place, I think, over in a day and a half. Yeah. Um, trying to get into the show and. The girls are funny. It's very silly. Um, it's kind of like, like you mentioned, stuff that he's going to be doing again and again, like rewriting history a little bit. Um, so it was cute. It was cute. I, super harmless. Um, a fun watch. Um, yeah. It's interesting, too, because one of the things they definitely tell you when you start out in this business is it's like, don't expect to get the rights to anything for the Beatles or Elvis. And so it took them nine months to get the Beatles to write off that they could use their music in their film. And so like that for like a first move, like is wild, absolutely bonkers. And it's funny too, because it was originally set up at at Warner brothers and Warner brothers was like, no, when it comes to a new director. And so (laughs) universal studios picks it up with the caveat that they will let Robert Zemeckis do it, but Spielberg has to be on set in order to make sure that it's not falling behind. And if it does, Spielberg is to take over as director. So really, it's kind of a win-win for them, because if Robert Zemeckis fails, they get a Spielberg movie. Right, right. Um, I will say that this is his first movie, and we get... A performance from a Wendy Jo Sperber, who we will also see in um, Back to the Future. And I was like, there are some girlies that he works with a lot as actors and actresses. Um, she's so fun. She's hilarious. Here's some great snapshots I got when the Beatles arrived at Kennedy Airport. Oh, did you get any pictures of the Beatles? Yeah, well, I didn't exactly see the Beatles, but I got some great shots of their suitcases. Wow. Used cars, uh, used cars is kind of like Animal House, but at used car lots. Like, I don't don't really know how, Kurt Russell's great to look at in it. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this is a antics movie. Uh, Yeah, you know. He he has said that he couldn't direct that nowadays. It's a young man's film. It's very young man film. Like, if you and your, like, frat bros want to watch a little romp, here she is. Uh, he also co-writes the screenplay 1941 with Bob Gale. Spielberg directs that movie. It's a huge bomb. And basically, these two films come out well-reviewed. Critics like them. Audiences don't connect to them. And Robert Zemeckis really gets this reputation of writing movies that are completely unfilmable. They're like, <laughs> great writer, bad movies. And... It's sort of fascinating because he, in the early 80s, he's like, I I don't know what to do. I'm having trouble finding jobs. He writes scripts for other directors, such as Brian De Palma. Um, and eventually, he writes this script called Back to the Future, and nobody fucking wants it. Luckily, he gets a call from Michael Douglas, who had seen used cars and was like, 
oh man, I really like this like what frantic style. What a weirdo. <laughs> oh yeah. He's like, I really love this frantic style. Uh, I'm making this movie called Romancing the Stone, which we talked about in our Michael Douglas episode, uh, co-starring Kathleen Turner. It's about a romance writer who gets involved in essentially one of her own romance plots. Mm -hmm. And he hires Robert Zemeckis to do it. Robert Robert Zemeckis has said to this day was the hardest film shoot he's ever been a part of because really? it yeah because it was all on location in a jungle like rainy that you were at the mercy of all the elements and everything i really like romancing the stone i think it's very fun i think it sets the template for a lot of this rom-com action style movies i mean even if you look at this year we just had that sandra bullock channing tatum movie that is like the clear- lost city yes which the lost city I, w- I was i rewatched romancing the stone we watched it for michael douglas i i rewatched it i was like oh the lost city is this movie yes like it is exactly this movie uh but yeah you're right all the beats though of comedy and romance that we're gonna see like this is like we have entered a new era like those first two movies were definitely him like you know trying something out and then now romancing the stone up until like i would say the late 90s we have like this new era of romance and action um and it, it, it's it's almost like his movies have been turbocharged by Hollywood. Like, they are yes. just turned all the fucking way up. I have to get to Cartagena. Cartagena? <laughs> Angel, you are hell and gone from Cartagena. Cartagena's over there on the coast. Oh, but they told me this bus. Who told you that? That man that... A nice man who pulled a gun on you. Uh-huh. What else did he tell you? <clears throat> he still has this bad reputation, and... People that are working on the movie are starting to whisper. They're like, we don't think he knows what he's doing. And he he had been hired by the producers of the then in the works movie Cocoon. And he finds out while making Romancing the Stone that he has been fired from Cocoon. Jesus. I think they got Dick at a weak moment and he got really nervous. And he he listened to those guys and said he had to like, "Let let me go. And then we previewed the movie, and and then he wanted me to come back, and then I said, you know, Dick, I don't think I can do it. It's so funny because it truly feels like that, you know, that spite that he had for his parents telling him he couldn't do it. He's now like, yeah. oh, you're telling me, like, producers of Cocoon, I can't do it? Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Here, Here's this movie. It's also his first collaboration with composer Alan Silvestri, who will end up composing all of his subsequent works. And yeah, so suddenly everybody wants Back to the Future. Everybody wants this script that he couldn't sell. He couldn't sell as an umbrella in a rainstorm. Like, <laughs> and he gets to make this movie. It's, a, you know, everybody knows what I feel like I don't have to intro Back to the Future. Right. It's a time travel comedy. Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, a DeLorean that can travel through time. It has some speed bumps. He initially casts Eric Stoltz in the lead role. They do a couple weeks of shooting. Eric Stoltz is wrong. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, said, wrong. Nor? Yeah. 
And he has to personally fire Eric Stoltz. He says it's outside of making Romancing the Stone one of the hardest things he's had to do. Yeah, Eric is a brilliant actor. I mean, we love him in all things. It's just that I simply, I simply miscast him, right. and I learned a very serious lesson. And, you know, it's like it's, it's not worth it. It's too painful for everybody. What you have to do is you have to cast the movie the right way and feel really right about it. Otherwise, don't go down that road. I can't imagine that movie without Michael J. Fox. Absolutely. I mean... It's truly, I just, I, I don't know. Like, and there's clips, there's clips of Eric Stoltz, but it's not, it's not, it's not it. <laughs> it's not the, it. The, the wildest thing going back and rewatching um, this movie is like Crispin Glover <laughs> as yes. the dad. And I'm like, Crispin Glover, AKA the thin man from Charlie's Angels. I was like, you are too villainous to be this dorky dad. I, it's so funny. I know the first one is so classic, but I I think that it would almost behoove us to talk about the three as a unit. You know, th- there's a reason why Robert Zemeckis really doesn't get himself involved in this sort of like multiple movie thing anymore because <laughs> it took up so much of his life and he doesn't ever want to be stuck doing the same thing, which I think is very clear if you look Obviously. at his And so he's like, he was glad he got to participate in these. I, I love, I love all three. I know people who don't like them and I think they maybe don't like fun, but (laughs) classically don't like fun, but I, I, I really like all three. Um, funny enough. Oh, real quick before I move off the first one. Uh, he recommended that they remove the Johnny B. Good scene from the first movie. He was like, ah, cuts the flow. Like whole movie stops dead for this one gag. And the editor was like, let's leave it in for the test screening. Let's just see. see. Yeah, and he said it was like peeling people off the ceiling after that scene happened. Yeah, that's like the the classic scene. Absolutely. So all of his instincts, not amazing. Personally, I really love the second one. I don't think that'll come as a shock to anybody in the audience. Who like the one that's the most complicated, that has the most complicated rules, that does not follow a narrative like hero's journey structure. My jam. I love the second one. I remember the second one more than the first one, really. Um, I watched, I'm going to be very honest, I watched one and two. I did not get to the third one. That's fine. Um, it's the but, least of the three. I'll be honest. But, but also what's weird is, did they shoot them all at the same time? They shot the first one, and then they shot the second two back to back. Because if you notice, you know, it's not the same Jennifer in the second movie. Right. Actually, actually the uh, it's Elizabeth Shue in the second movie. The part, the second movie has my favorite retake, which I think is so funny, which is if you watch the end of the original Back to the Future, when Marty McFly, when the doc's like, we need to go back to the future, it's your kids. And Marty goes, what do we become assholes? The yeah. doc answers right away. No, it's this, uh, you know, in the beginning of part two, when you see the same scene, which is clearly reshot for this film, he's like, what happens? Do we become assholes? Christopher Lloyd pauses for a moment, like, well, no, it's not that. <laughs> now, what happens to us in the future? What, do we become assholes or something? Oh, no, 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 no. You and Jennifer both turn out fine. Also, can we say, you know, PG movies back then really were just doing a lot more than what we're doing today. Oh, okay? absolutely. I These mean, would be hard PG-13s now. <laughs> and hard. it's so hard. I mean, it's so funny, too, and this is not a conversation for this episode, but PG-13 really only exists because of uh, Gremlins and Indiana Jones. So, like, 
it's so funny that like they were still trying to figure out what is PG, what's PG thirteen. But you're right, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in this. I, there's even like nudity in the second uh, Back to the Future when he's looking through the the yeah. like girly magazine. So yeah, I mean, like I would still argue that this is a movie for kids. Like, but it's definitely like an older kid situation. But I don't know. Also, I'm like, yeah, kids know the word asshole. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely remember like was it Biff. Biff, yeah, or, and or like, and which has... which Biff? Are you talking Biff? You talking Griff? You talking old Biff? No, Griff <laughs> is what I was, it was like Biff, and I was like, okay, that's a kind of funny, funny gag that his like his Griff, whatever. Uh, yeah, that's. I think there's a lot to like love about the series. Um, again, I didn't watch the third one, so who the fuck knows? But it's a uh, western. It's got Mary Steenburgen. Who doesn't love her? Ooh, I do love her actually. Yeah, uh, I. I love the idea, though, of just, like, looking at these old movies from the 80s and 90s and, like, their idea of what the future was going to look like. It's just so funny to me. Um, it makes me feel like, oh, we're so we're so quaint as people, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, we really failed. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, but it, there is something to be said. Is this not the era or, like, the, one of the first movies where the special effects of it all is really popping off for the first time for him. Oh, absolutely. And he's really pushing the limits of things. You know, they're shooting models of the DeLorean. They're shooting the full-size DeLorean in front of green screen. They're having multiple actors play multiple roles. So they're actually having to shoot the actors one way. And then you got to shoot them again in the other direction and then have an editor go in and composite those together not digitally because this was not digital editing this is all done by hand slicing with literal razor blades like slicing down the, yeah it it's complicated and i think he pulls it off so well also by the way as you mentioned that crispin glover he's not in either of the sequels so what they do is that it's a double who like is playing crispin glover and crispin glover actually sued them over the use of his image and lost what yeah that's a gag. I don't, I mean, it's just weird. It's oh, it's always weird. Like, why not just recast him? Like, I don't, like. Well, I because they want the continuity between the films. And I, which is funny because, like, they clearly recast Jennifer. But. Right, right. I was like, uh, whatever. I mean, when you're watching those movies, like, you can't think too hard about, like, I mean, anything time travel. Like, just, you can't yeah. think too hard. You you're just there for like the bits and the gags and like you know the hoverboards and like it's it's kind of frothy fun. Um, there is a film that comes between Back to the Future Part One and Back to the Future's Two and Three, and that's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, another massive undertaking on uh, on his part. Truly, like it's bonkers. You know, they, it's animation, it's live action. They shot. In the build-up to the movie, they shot, like, a, a two-minute test scene with Joe Pantoliano uh, interacting with Roger Rabbit to prove they could do it. And they showed it to the execs at Disney, and they were so blown away because they truly did not believe it was animation. Yeah, it's a gorgeous-looking movie. Like It truly even, is. It holds up. Yeah, today, I'm just like, our cartoons don't even look this good. You know? No. Like, the, and, the amount of effort from the animation side of it is like wild. And, you know, for, for the technical, I, I don't even know half of this shit, but like you just know looking at it's like technically it must have been super bonkers to yeah. do all of that. And Ken Ralston is the special effects artist who really came up with how they were going to pull it off. He had worked on Star Wars before. He's incredibly famous and incredibly talented. And it's this collaboration, you know, and Zemeckis is 
it's so many different pieces being put together. It's, you know, you're you're shooting Bob Hoskins in front of a green screen. Sometimes they have like a little fake Roger Rabbit that they can move around so you can see where the lighting is. You also have literally standing off to the side of the screen Charles Fleischer, who's dressed in a makeshift Roger Rabbit outfit, <laughs> so much so that people said that when they would see the movie shooting, often heard around the Disney studio a lot, would be like, they're not really spending a lot of money on that rabbit film. <laughs> it's a whole other whoopee situation <laughs> with the dinosaur movie. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. You know, it's a 1940s noir. It's also this, like really really funny comedic as as uh zemeckis has put it you know he really wanted it to be like a have the the hilarity of a looney tunes cartoon with disney style animation and a tex avery plot but a little less dark yeah i mean i and i think like yeah homer like nationals platter like it's it's just <laughs> it it i was obviously impressed by the visuals but the script is just so tight it's it so, truly is there is no wasted moment the jokes are so funny um yeah it's very impressive do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time no not at any time only when it was funny <laughs> come on eddie where's your sense of humor he always is funny or only on days when he's wanted for murder in 1992 we get the black comedy death becomes her a gay staple iconique period and uh this is a film about two women who hate each other so much that they are willing to spend their immortal afterlife (laughs) harming each other it's petty the movie (laughs) yes absolutely um our good friend christy puchko who has been on this show before a couple times uh she wrote an amazing amazing look back for its anniversary called The Glorious Queer Afterlife of Death Becomes Her that ran in Vanity Fair. I suggest you check that out. It like any piece of information that you want about this movie and especially like how it connects into queer audiences. It has a huge gay cult following and it it is because it's these two ladies that are just like just vile. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's Joan Crawford, you know, yeah. it, it's 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 all it's high camp it's glorious um i also i mean i just watched it today again and i was like god again it looks so good the effects are incredible um and i i don't i can't imagine a lot of movies in 1992 were looking that fucking amazing yeah meryl streep hated shooting it so much right. Right. she Fam- said she did hate that yeah Fam- famously she said she would never do it again i mean that's a lie she's done special effects movies since then but i think it's so funny that she was like no like this is not acting but yeah to- she's like i don't want to be a fucking lamp <laughs> right but to robert zemeckis this is filmmaking he you know for him spectacle is what people pay for he's like they give you their time they give you their money they're going to be transported to another place whether it's a dark place whether it's a light place it's about the spectacle of the film you know movies are expensive and not only are they expensive you know from a cost standpoint you're investing your you know hours of your life where you could be doing something you know so you don't want to see a movie that you're not gonna you know really appreciate And it's so funny because I have heard him talk about, like, the thing that draws him to a movie is great characters. 
I don't know if that's true. Because, You're a liar, Dina. Yeah, because it's very clear that the thing that, I mean, he may say that, he may think that's part of the process for him, but I think, you know, it truly is like, what are the visuals and what can I pull off? And I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing him. I think he's unparalleled when it comes to pushing the envelope in the visual effects department, because he is truly the person who is like, I'm going to lead the way, whether it's good or not. And we're going to get to it. But like, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I think. I think there are some movies where it's just clearly I'm like, okay, Robert Zemeckis is just like jerking off in the corner, like being like, look what I can do. Look what I can yeah. do. And it's like, okay, enough. <laughs> so during this time, also, he has enough clout that he puts his money towards uh, developing a new version of Tales from the Crypt for HBO and based off the EC comics. He goes and he directs three of those episodes. It runs from 89 to 1996, including the very first episode, which is a remake of All Around the House, which is a segment from the Tales from the Crypt movie. Um, and I gotta say, the original is better. Sorry, Robert. Hate to say it. Um, then in 94, he directs his most successful film to date, which is Forrest Gump, starring Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah, I know. Tom Hanks plays the title role um forrest gump is a, a man with they say low iq i, I whatever i mean yeah. jesus i'm watching this movie it's hard to it's hard to talk about this movie because i i think when he made it i think he like you said great american novel i think that's what he thinks he's making yeah i think that he thinks he's making you know the ultimate uh frank capper movie he has said that this movie is about grief and loss i actually think the story was a lot uh, about a lot uh, different forms of grieving you know we were kind of grieving in the end of an era the grieving of sort of sort of the uh you know sort of the end of the american dream and all these different types of grief that were themes that ran through the movie but they were done in a way that made it really palatable so it was it was a way that you could, it could be cathartic in a way and i think that maybe like unlocks a truth about him as well that feels what very kind like, of green right. book nonsense right that's that's <laughs> those words right and like it feels like it's like i think you're grieving a loss for a time that never existed sir right I, like that's not really how vietnam was right and like i i know forrest gump is a novel uh, so like he's adapting it, so I can't speak to the source material. Um, I've not read Forrest Gump, but a lot of it is spectacle. Like it's it's spectacle. Yeah, like, there's it's him the- meeting presidents. It's putting him in, you know, the march on Washington D.C. It's yeah. it's like him. It's him inventing like shit happened. I mean, there's he's inventing all these things. Like I, we can talk about it more later, but Forrest Gump is. A, a very different watch now than yes. I imagine it was in the nineties where, you know, life was fucking rosy, I guess. And, th- and that's what I, I truly think that's what it is. It's, it's very easy to look back on it now with a 2022 critical eye and be like, Oh goodness, you know, 85 to 90% of the mo- this movie is very inappropriate and, and like not good. And some of it's, some of it's completely indefensible. And, <laughs> but I think at the time, I think people in the 90s really thought that they were so progressive and so yeah. just like on the right side of history. And so it's it's hard to like 
I know why it won those Academy Awards. You know, he wins Best Director at the Academy Awards. Like, it's yeah. not, it doesn't go unrewarded. The film I mean, grosses $677 million worldwide, became the top U.S. film of 1994. Six Academy Awards altogether, including Best Picture, Best Actor, aforementioned Best Director. And it became a culture. I mean, like, Run, Forest Run will yeah. forever be there. They, you they, can you can go to Bubba Gump Shrimp like yeah exactly I, it's like it, it was it generated money and that's you know I guess that's its true legacy is that it just and unfortunately though what that means or what that meant I think is like people were like oh, you can win Academy Awards and make seven hundred million dollars like Hollywood said aha this is what we need to be making and then here we fucking go just getting a million people trying to replicate Forrest Gump yeah yeah. Oh boy. Um anyways, <laughs> his next film is his most I would say his most blank check film of them all. 1997 comes along, he can make anything he wants and he yeah. makes an adaptation of Contact, the Carl Sagan novel from 1985. This is a film about um you know, alien contact stars Jodie Foster. She's working for SETI. The government's trying to shut it down. She intercepts a message. You know, they tell her to build a spaceship. She does. She has an encounter. Is it real? Did it happen? Is the movie about faith? Is the movie about belief in a higher power? Is it about belief in Matthew yourself? McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. I love contact. Like, I unabashedly love contact. I love the fact that when he was truly pressed to make whatever he wanted, this is the direction he went in. This is the thing that gives me faith in Robert Zemeckis that makes me think like his heart is in the right place. I think there's a lot of really great stuff in contact. I also think it is not one of his most successful films. I feel like it's not one of the most, the films that people are like, yeah, contact. Right. I had an experience I can't prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. I was given something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. In 1999, he ends up donating $5 million towards the Robert Zemeckis Center for Digital Arts at USC, which is a 35,000 square foot center. Um, when the center opened in 2001, Zemeckis spoke in a panel about the future of film alongside Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Of those, including Spielberg, who clung to celluloid and disparaged the idea of shooting digitally, Zemeckis said, these guys are the same ones who've been saying that LPs sound better than this, than CDs. You can argue that until you're blue in the face, but I don't know anyone who's still buying vinyl. The film, as we have traditionally thought of it, is going to be different. But the continuum is man's desire to tell stories around the campfire. The only thing that keeps changing is the campfire. And so at that moment, he truly becomes uh, an early adopter of digital film, which is so funny because his films do not look bad. <laughs> like there is early digital film from around this era that look is real, not great. Um, but he manages to pull it off. Uh, it's so weird to me. Like, obviously by this time he's made a bunch of money and he's made these big culture movies, but like 
I don't know. A lot of this stuff, it's like, oh, okay, wow, are you so... It's just like very like, I'm on my high horse and I'm an artist and I can't, like, it's... See, th- see, no, see, this is where I'm going to disagree with you there, because I think it's really annoyingly highfalutin when a when a director is like when a director pulls up and they're like Chris Nolan. And he's like, a d- digital film. Oh, 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 I need to lie on my fainting couch like <laughs> that. So honestly, I'm on Zemeckis' side in this because like I think he is a, a bit of a futurist and he sees the way things are going and he's like, you know, it got to. Gotta adapt with the time or I, die. I, I agree with that, and yes, but like also like the desire to tell campfire stories. Oh like, yeah, no, that's. I was like, okay, girl, you live for drama. Like, stop. <laughs> you you're right about that. Um, <laughs> so he starts developing a movie called The Castaway with Tom Hanks, uh, inspired by Robinson Crusoe, and also at the same time working on this Hitchcockian thriller called What Lies Beneath. Uh, he goes to shoot Castaway. They shoot half of it. And then they, like, give time for Tom Hanks to grow a beard and lose a ton of weight. I think everybody knows what Castaway is, but if you don't, he's a man who works for FedEx who, in a plane crash, gets marooned on an island for four years and then, you know, has to learn to survive for those four years. Uh, So they took a huge break so he could grow the beard, lose a bunch of weight. And during that break, he films What Lies Beneath. And what's funny is Castaway was a Fox movie. What Lies Beneath was a DreamWorks movie. And what they did is they decided to co-produce both. So each of them both got two movies out of the deal instead of just one. And he makes What Lies Beneath in between. It's this small Hitchcockian thriller, as I mentioned before. It You know, it's Michelle Pfeiffer. We talked about it in her episode, Harrison Ford. You know, is there a ghost? Is there not a ghost? It's got some special effects in it, but for the most part, it's really low key in terms of his special effects stuff. And then he goes back and he finishes Castaway. Both films come out in 2000. And Castaway is just a huge, huge hit. Yeah, it's it's Forrest Gump Part Two. <laughs> I mean, in terms of m- money, right? In like, terms of oh, money, okay. no. Obviously, okay. like obviously, the movie's very different, but like it yeah. is also very great American novel. It's about yes. men surviving, man surviving, man who made the wrong decision, who left his family on Christmas because time. It's it's these yeah. big idea type movies filtered through the lens or like the story of you know these really extreme you know events um and and uh, yeah i mean castaway i don't know i go back and forth on castaway i i watched it for i had like bought into the joke of castaway because people have spent years being like wilson <laughs> and whatnot you know because he talks to a volleyball in it which by the way you can still buy the wilson volleyball from the wilson website which i think is in poor taste and <laughs> with um, the hand on it yes yes oh you can God. it's for 20 bucks and I were, I rewatched it for this and I really I w- I dug it. I I will say there is so much FedEx branding in it. Oh yeah, but, honey. They said uh, content content content. Yeah, they're like you're going to use our name, it's going to be everywhere. But um I I will say like I enjoyed it a lot. I like I I appreciate it cuz it truly is like a filmic experience. One of the best plane crashes I've ever seen dedicated to film. Um that film was made for 90 million dollars. It made 429.6 million dollars. It became the highest grossing film of 2000. Um What Lies Beneath was made for 100 million and made 291.4 million. Uh so he just he, he's like seemingly can't lose. Writing checks, honey. Absolutely. Um 
And then, uh, and then in two thousand, yeah. And then in two thousand four, he decides to make the first ever full motion capture film, The Polar Express, based based off the book of the same name by Chris Van Allsburg. Um, it's another film in which he works with Tom Hanks on. Tom Hanks plays multiple roles in this movie. I will tell you, I had never seen this movie purposefully. Mm. My 22-year-old niece loved it, but I don't think it's... The funny thing is, is I don't I don't know how, like, what the legacy of this movie is, because I don't think she's ever like, let's watch the Polar Express around Christmas. Like, I've never had to sit through it, even though I know she had seen it. Right. It's, it's like, no one's ever like, let's watch that movie that, like, is about Christmas, but looks, I don't know, like... Uh, uh, a waking nightmare <laughs> yeah they found the uncanny valley okay yeah. they, like they, that that train is going straight through the uncanny valley i i i don't know i'm trying my best to be really positive this movie's ugly this movie is yeah. ugly it's hard to watch i really did not enjoy it i also think it like has a really weird message i remember reading this book in grade school and being like oh yeah but then there's like this weird thing because there's like a really bittersweet thing about like eventually no one believes in santa but this one person and i was like i don't under like what is the point of this and also like it's like very like lie to your children <laughs> right i think like i mean the legacy of this movie truly is just like again all spectacle no substance because yeah. it is such a hollow movie that it's a beautiful gowns movie except the gowns aren't even that beautiful right it's just at the time it was kind of like wild to see like you know and and tom hanks's face is on everything and like terrifyingly <laughs> and zemeckis knows how to like pull a stunt so like there's glitter and sparkle and like you know all that shit everywhere but yeah i mm, polar express yeah. Also, that's this movie was the return of Eddie Deason, who was in I Wanna Hold Your Hand, and it is maybe the most annoying character ever committed to film. <laughs> oh, which right, is right, right. The yeah. know it all boy. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Hey you. Yeah, you. Do you know what kind of train this is? Huh? Train. Do you know what kind of train this is? Well, do ya? That movie was made for like 160 to 170 million, and it made 314 million. So like it's not a flop by any means, but I also, like I said, I don't know, like, what is the, you know, what... They were trying to make, like, a new classic. Right. And, I mean, for some people, maybe it is. Um, not for me. <laughs> um, in February of 2007, Walt Disney Studios chairman Dick Cook announced plans for a new performance capture film company devoted to CG-created 3D movies, Image Movers Digital... Uh, which was created uh, with Zemeckis directing most of the projects which Disney would distribute and market worldwide. Zemeckis used performance capture technology again in his film Beowulf, previously mentioned. Um, Beowulf, epic tale, I don't know. I hate that movie. I truly hate that movie. I watched it for Angelina (laughs) Jolie. I was like, this is bad. I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, it's it's Shrek. I'm sorry. It It is Shrek. It it looks looks like Shrek. It looks like Shrek, but, like, they're cursing Bale. I will say, props to whoever was like, okay, we have to have him fighting naked. And what are we going to use to cover his dick while he's fucking beating up um, Grendel? Because that fight is insanity. Um, I don't know why Beowulf has to do it naked. He, I guess he explains it, but I can't remember what the fuck he says. Yeah, it makes it's, no sense. it's from the poem. Like, 
what whatever it's from the poem this shit's in 3d like <laughs> fuck the poem like uh, it, it's it's very bizarre to see this like it looks like it's for kids and there's it's very gory grendel looks terrifying i don't know who this movie's for this movie is for that English teacher in high school who doesn't want to, like, teach the, the actual poem. Right. And it's funny because I am very much of the mind that not all animation has to be for children, and that's perfectly fine. Yes. And, I, and it's clear Beowulf is, I think it's clear Beowulf is not meant for children, but also, like, there's nothing about the way that it looks that says this is also meant for adults. So right. then I'm left going, who who is this be- for? Because it, it looks like Shrek. And I don't mean that, like, disparagingly. It looks like it is for kids visually, the way the people look is childlike i don't get it yeah um i don't get it he also does the 2009 version of a christmas carol with jim carrey i also watched this for the first time even though we did a jim carrey episode because i hate christmas movies and i i did it anyways and yeah it's accurate i guess for the most part another another beautiful gowns movie this one actually i I think this one looks a lot better than polar express oh it it does it it like leaps leaps and bounds and like you can see where the technology is getting better right but i don't know just it's another version of christmas carol gavin's like let's put the muppet version on yes absolutely um, I mean, it ends up grossing 325 million at the box office, so it's it's nothing to shake a stick at. But um, he also then goes on to produce Mars Needs Moms, which ends up being the second worst box office failure in history. It had a net loss of roughly 130 million. I mean, this was coming. This was coming at some point because yeah. this style of motion capture animation just was not connecting with people. And eventually they were going to get to a property that just didn't have the audience retention. And this was it. And luckily he didn't direct this, but his hand was on it. And so Disney decides to end its relationship with Image Movers Digital. And they were like its big champion. They were like, this is the wave of the future. And then they're like, guess not. No, 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 no. This, I mean... This is also just like the 3D era or like the resurgence of the 3D stuff. Everyone was banking on that shit. And like, you know, I'm sure Zemeckis was like, ooh, shiny toys to play with. Let's let's see. Um, But eh. I think this also ends up being the catalyst for what pushes him back into live action film. So in 2012, he directs his first live action movie since Castaway. Flight, Denzel Washington, Drunk Airline Pilot uh crashes a, a plane then gets put on trial for if he was being safe there was multiple deaths even though he technically ended up saving the the plane um yeah i saw flight in the theater i do not like this movie i think denzel washington's amazing in it and i think the i think the character is a great character and i think that's literally where all the writing went into the one character everything else is like tissue thin so much so that his main love interest disappears in the middle of the movie because the movie no longer needs her yeah i don't i even think the idea of the love interest is horrible yeah like i i don't like it i don't like this woman who is like an addict and like is just there to what yeah to to what tell him that he's also an addict but she's like a good one but also like uh, and she's also kind of there to be a punching bag because he's like really vile to her. Yeah, I don't know. This movie. <laughs> also, this is a critique for all of his movies, I would say. Like this, all a lot of his movies, because he's like Mr. Big Hollywood Man, they all have to have the like 
Hollywood man of moment um, where I make the right decision because I am good. And it's like Denzel Washington's character throughout this entire movie would not make the decision he makes at the very end where he admits that he was the one drinking and shit. He would not do that. Yeah. He... He's, but, he's an addict. But I think that's where this movie sort of fails, too, because this movie is sort of the opposite in terms of contact when it comes to its messaging about faith. This movie has a lot of scenes where characters are like, hey, the word of Jesus, like the, yeah. the get right with the Lord and everything. And that's what he ends up doing at the end. And it's is like Zemeckis a secret like conservative christian person is that I, not so secret i don't fucking know i don't know that's the thing and like uh, this movie is the worst when it comes to that like it's the most overt right yeah i i don't know it's, but i mean there's like the actual church that they hit when the plane is crashing yeah there but 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 again you have fucking john goodman like a fucking wrecking ball yeah I, and like tone- just an in, I love John Goodman. I love it. Uh, uh, Robert Zemeckis has said he loves John Goodman. It's completely his character shouldn't exist in this movie. Like it, no. it's it's a terrible character, and it just comes in out of nowhere. It's from another the t- movie. The tone is insane. Yeah. All I can tell you is when I saw it in the theater, what I remember is really disliking it and ending, and up the person sitting three seats away from me stood up and clapped. And- <laughs> And said, "Woo, that's a movie. That's how it's done. Yikes. So, yeah. New York City, baby. I've known you 11 years, Wayne. Right. You want to tell me that you and Trina went to dinner and you had two glasses of wine? No, Sounds like a nice restaurant. Now, which one was it? You, you have to say that. It was an ordinary day, Margaret. I mean, it was an ordinary day. You know me. I was in shape to fly. And... Uh, You have a problem saying that it's a lie Whip. i kind of just want to lump the next bunch of movies together because yeah, this is oh, this is this is a new era this is trying to recapture forrest gump era yes so he does uh the walk it's based off of a book by a tight walker a philip petite um i'm sure that's not how you say his name but i don't do french and uh but i can if you like it's it's from his memoir to reach the clouds but also there was a academy award-winning documentary made about this exact same thing called man on wire and yeah it's a movie about the guy that walked between the um world trade centers uh i didn't hate it but i also watched it on a laptop and i think that this movie is not made to be seen at home right it's it's like literally you need to see it in like imax 3d and if not it's kind of a waste i think the first hour is some of his worst filmmaking ever the (laughs) monologue and and joseph gordon levett like i'm i don't know man i eventually got used to the performance but it took me a very long time because it's so theatrical and so and also, it's weird because if you watch Man on Wire, you realize that this man's not maybe the greatest person in the world. He's a flawed human being. And this movie's like, geez, g- genius, brilliant, like uh-huh. never replicated. Like, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the next film after that is Allied, his World War II movie with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard. Marion um, Cotillard. That is a, a movie about spies, World War II. It's definitely, it's going for Casablanca. Like, you can see it all over the costumes. 
uh, I didn't think Brad Pitt and her had any chemistry at all. And I thought, I thought what was funny is she, her, as part of the plot, her character like is forcing chemistry on him because she's like hitting on him from the moment he arrives and not to give away any twists or anything, but I was like, oh, well it feels like Marion Cotillard was like having to force chemistry on Brad Pitt. Yeah. I think she's really good in it. Oh yeah. Um, I, yeah, Brad isn't giving as much, uh, but I didn't, I didn't hate it. I thought, you know, kind of a perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Kind of like a sexy kind of, wartime um lizzie kaplan as a lesbian love yes that. yeah that was fun um <laughs> welcome to marwin his second film based off a documentary uh based off the documentary marwin call a film about mark hogan camp who was a man who was assaulted outside of a bar and he ends up like with massive memory loss and his like therapy is that he creates this these little worlds out of dolls in his yard um whole storylines uh adds new people into it and basically has created and his own alternate reality where he feels safe um mark hogan camp is a brilliant photographer and has gone on to many um exhibitions of these photographs that he's taken of of marwin call and yeah the watch the documentary <laughs> there's that <laughs> and uh the witches in 2020 which was clearly a paycheck job um the witches which i don't even i think was pulled from hbo max as part it of was their, it's yeah, not on anymore yeah as part of their tax write-off gag i was i was like you guys were first of all the witches went to hbo max during that whole hullabaloo yeah. of like everything's going to hbo max and i was like i'm gonna go watch the witches now and i sure the fuck was not because it was gone um, so I will say I didn't watch the witches. I heard bad things about it. Um, it's one of those. Why remake it? What's the point? Yeah. The, the original is iconic. We don't yeah. need another one. And speaking of iconic, we don't need another one. Ah. That brings us to 2022's Pinocchio. We'll probably talk more about Pinocchio in the fast forward since it just came out and you can watch it now. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I do want to mention that real quick in terms of personal life. He said that he sacrificed a lot of his life for his career. He said, quote, I won an Academy Award when I was 44 years old, but I paid for it in my 20s. That decade of my life from film school till 30 was nothing but work, nothing but absolute driving work. I had no money. I had no life. He married um, actress Mary Ellen Trainer in the 80s. Uh, they have a son, Alexander Francis. He described that their marriage was difficult, to, trying to balance both filmmaking and his relationship, and it eventually ended in divorce. He later marries Leslie Harder in 2001, who is also an actress, and they have three children together. He's a pilot, which explains why maybe a lot of his films have flying in it. Yes. And uh, he's contributed to... Oh, the Democratic Party. Yeah, he, he has contributed to the Democratic Party, uh, as well as PACs that support interests of aircraft owners and pilots, family planning interests, and a group that advocates for Hollywood women. Huh. I don't buy it, but okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, we got to report the truth. If that's if that's the truth, then we got to report it. that's what it. she says, fine. But like, also, the whole idea, like, I paid for it in my 20s. Okay. I don't think that I don't think that's a weird a wrong thing to say. Like he not, was a really I'm, hard worker in his 20s. Yes, great bitch, we are hard workers in our 20s. <laughs> like I don't also fuck I I have a problem with 
especially people in Hollywood who are like, I was working so hard in my 20s. Girl, you, you graduated and straight to directing with fucking Steven Spielberg, okay? Yeah. Like, that, I mean, that that's true. Like, he, you know, it's it certainly wasn't hurting for friends in high places, I will right. say. Also, had no money? I don't buy that. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you yeah. mean? Your first, like, couple movies, you know, like, they were pretty successful. He yeah. very quickly found massive success. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Robert. <laughs> All right. I think it's a safe space to stop our rewind and go into our picks. Why don't we start with our one-star reviews and get the bad before we go into the good? So there there are some options here. Oh, uh, goodness, are there options. <laughs> but for me, I think my one-star review is 2015's The Walk. Um, the walk is cuckoo bananas. Um, I, and I, I'm choosing the walk because there is a lot of style here that is hot garbage. Like (laughs) it's, I, it starts off with the most insane looking Joseph Gordon staring straight at us with like bad contacts and the shake and go bus driver wig in the, like little flame of the Statue of Liberty. Yes. Where and he stays for the entire movie. By the way, there. accurate to the eighties. I was like, or accurate to the seventies. Ugh, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Truly cares. Um, when you could go up there, but like he's monologuing his story to us with the twin towers in the back. And then it's like, let it's, it's, it's very like, let me tell you a story about my time in Paris. And it's in black and white for no reason. <laughs> like, what? Um, because he's a mime, I guess. What, what I think is so funny is he worked with the actual acrobat to get the accent down as well as the with the tightrope walking. Right, 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 right. Um, but he also, you know, was apparently a Francophile and already spoke French. Your accent there, I would say, is about as accurate as his accent is in the movie. I couldn't, like, I was like, what, like, is this fucking Pepe Le Pew? Yeah, it was very that. I, the movie to me, I, I'm, there are moments where I was like, wow, this is very high. I feel like exhilarated. There are like some stunning, it's, there's some stunning like shots, but it just makes no goddamn sense. Okay. I'm so sorry. Like, the idea, this guy, they show us, they show us him doing like two tightrope walking things before he gets to the fucking World Trade Center, and I was like, it does that's two times, and he's like, you know what I want to do? It, 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 I, there's just too much in this movie that makes no sense to me, and the performances are crazy to me, and it, the style is. <laughs> ugly to me um like i said i true i truly believe this is not a film to be watched at home i think this this is like an exhibition movie this is like a movie that you should only you can only see in theaters which to me is actually opposite of like zemeckis's whole thing where he's like i i want to push the envelope i want to show people something they haven't seen before and show them something new 
And like, you can't watch this movie at home. It's ugly at home. That when that fucking CG seagull comes to him at the end, I was I like, know. what is this? I was yeah. like, fucking Ang Lee had <laughs> like amazing immaculate birds in Life of Pi. And this is the bird you give us? Yeah. Robert Zemeckis? I just think that there's problems on like all the fronts here. Performances, whack. Um, visuals, whack. Story, whack. It's. I, I don't know. He must have just like gotten into his head like I just cannot bl- between the black and white and him standing up there talking in that fucking Statue of Liberty and then the 9-11 of it all like yeah. the movie was like in honor of 9-11. I was like I would I just <laughs> and then the idea like if they really want to show him he, he's bleeding on the wire and like oh my goodness and and again this man has no faults. Also, he's cracking up. He's going crazy. It's like he's you're just saying that he's not being I don't nothing about this story is believable. These are not humans. They're not characters. It's just uh, a means to an end. I don't know. And the funny thing is, as I mentioned, it's based, you know, there's a documentary that won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Seriously, Louis, if you've not seen it, watch it. It's so good. And what the documentary does really well, and the only part of this movie I find enjoyable is when it's like a slight like heist movie about them trying to get in and up to right. the the top. And the documentary does that so well that it like feels like a heist movie without like resorting to the tactics that Robert Zemeckis had to resort to, to make it a fictional film. And yeah, I just, it's one of those things where like, I, I don't understand the impetus to like remake something like this when a really amazing version of it already exists. So I guess just to see the walk itself, which once again, like at home looks like shit. Yeah. And it's also like a five minute thing that he like stretches out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's my pick, The Walk. As soon as my entire weight is on the cable, I feel immediately a feeling I know by heart. I feel the wire supporting me. I feel the tower supporting the wire. Oh my God, he's doing it. He's doing it! Okay, well, I'm going to pick the other documentary adaptation. (laughs) Uh, I'm going with 2018's Welcome to Marwin. this movie's offensive. <laughs> this yeah. movie, uh, if you, it, as I've said before, you should really watch Jeff Malmberg's 2010 documentary Marwan Call, which is I about- watched half of it, and then I got tired. But yeah, I was like, I was like, oh, again, fucking Hollywoodification right. <laughs> of people that are complicated, complex, are not black and white. Uh, yeah, go ahead, and, Kevin. And I think part of the problem with this movie is I think Zemeckis is looking at it in sort of a Forrest Gump kind of way mm-hmm. as well, yeah. too. And yeah. I think what he does is he boils Mark Hogenkamp's life down to like almost like a sad simpleton, yeah. which is like really offensive because this is a artistic genius and a man who has created an entire world that exists outside of our own and made art from that. And right. And his story is tragic. It's truly a hate crime. Five men beat him up because he admits to occasionally wearing women's clothes. So this is technically a queer story. Even if he himself is straight, you know, gender bending the norms is a queer thing. And so this is a hate crime that happens. He is beaten so severely that he has memory loss 
And this movie paints him as kind of like the movie goes explicitly out of its way to be like, but I'm super straight and it's not weird at all. And it's not it's everything about this guy, because even in the documentary, he's like a horny fucking like he loves women. He loves women. And, And it's not just like a. Oh, the spirit of women, which is what the fucking movie wants right. us to believe. That, like, the spirit of women but, just but makes then, him feel good. And th- but then the reverse of that, all of the, like... So, the movie is peppered with these fantasy sequences that take place in Marwin. Because the movie takes place before he decides to name it Marwin Call. And so... It, and all of these fantasy sequences, these, like, Amazonian dolls have, like, big, big butts... Big chest, skinny little middle. They look um, like they're Barbie. They're Barbie dolls. They're Barbie dolls, and it's so funny because like you don't really it didn't it didn't need that like or make him more accurate to the to the person he is to make it make sense. But yeah. like in, in the film, it's not interested in that. On top of that, these fantasy sequences are so violent mm-hmm. and so childish. And and they come out of nowhere in the movie that it's totally disjarring. And I get what he's trying to do is he's trying to like upset the audience, like what's real, what's not real. But like we know what's real. We know that like there's not Nazis coming to get <laughs> Steve Carell, which which didn't were they were not Nazis, right? Like in, in real life, I was like, <laughs> they made the decision. They said, wait a second, we can't just have hateful fucking assholes. Let's make them Nazis. Yes, that'll do good in Hollywood storytelling. Fucking infuriating. And I, I will also say this was the other movie that gave me like creeptastic vibes because it really acts as though there was maybe some I don't want to put words in his mouth. It really goes out of its way to be like there was some justification for this altercation, and that justification is alcohol. Yeah, The movie constantly references that he was drunk when he was beat up, and when he reads his big impassioned speech in the court in the end, he mentions that, I know I'm not completely innocent because I had been drinking. And then at the end of the movie, it's like he has not drank since the incident. And it's like, babes, (laughs) alcohol is not a problem for five men beating you severely for admitting to wearing the opposite gender's clothing. Right. But I also think that the movie doesn't do enough to explain that Hogan camp was kind of like not a great dude and was an alcoholic because, and not that like he was an asshole, like no one says, but like he in the documentary was like, I was, my life was nothing. I was just a drunk piece of shit. And the movie, though, wants to have it both ways. And so, like, it's going to be like, do, 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 I don't drink anymore because that was bad and got me beat up. Where in reality, he says, you know, that just, that was beat out of me. Like, I, I just don't like it anymore because yeah. it's it's just gone. Um, the, the, the movie, Welcome to Marwin, I just think was totally interested in, like, one sliver of this man's life um, and said, let's make a movie out of that. And it's fucking stupid it's yeah it's it's disrespectful to fucking the source and uh and it's yeah. disrespectful to the audience i feel like i it, mean a- it asks I, you to to buy into a bunch of stuff that that truly is like upsetting and doesn't make any sense and it bums me out because 
I think the female cast is a really amazing collection of actresses. Diane Kruger, Merritt Weaver, Janelle Monet, uh, Isa Gonzalez, Gwendolyn Christie, Leslie Mann, um, even Leslie Zemeckis, Robert Zemeckis's wife. Right. I, I think they're all great. And this movie services them in no way. Yeah. It, it's just, I think because you have to like, they want us to obviously like Steve Carell's character, but you ha- there has to be a part of this also that realizes or recognizes and it says, this is weird. Like why is he, and, it, and the, the documentary says, you know, he's doing this because the system has failed him. He has to do this because Medicaid will not pay for actual therapy. Right. You know, there is a failure here. And so there's a lot of interesting things to be said about healthcare. But instead, this movie is just like, Nazis are bad. And he gets triggered whenever he sees one or whatever. And or whatever. Like, or whatever is correct. And like has to hide in his little like Barbie cartoon fantasy world, which is just like <laughs> fucking simpleton USA Hollywood nonsense um i will say that the barbie scenes look good they're fu- like they visually are stunning i guess they're fine <laughs> they're, I, oh. I feel like fine at the most no i mean i was like i've never seen them like barbie's fucking looking like it's i would rather fucking just see janelle monet as a barbie and like merit weaver as a barbie that going on adventure, yeah, yeah going on adventures that, than like you know steve carell's nonsense um yeah also i last thing i'll say about it steve carell makes him very pathetic yeah, he, he plays no, I agree. so pathetic. And in the documentary, he's like, yeah, I did try and like hit on this woman who was married. I didn't want, you know, to, to steal her away. But like, I want a companion. I want a partner. And he's like, he knows what he wants. And he's like, I want a woman in my life. And in here, it's very like crybaby nonsense. It's yeah. pathetic. Like I said, it's it's like Forrest Gump, too. And it's and this is not the place for that. Would you marry me? Get up, please. Get up now. I'm sorry, I think this has been one big misunderstanding. I'm sorry if you mistook my intentions, but I don't, um, I'm sorry. Um, we're friends, we're, um, we're really good friends. But we're just not in the same place right now. Was there anything else you saw that you didn't particularly like? Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. Looking through my list. Okay. Forrest Gump. Um, uh, I understand why it is what it is. But it, to me, this is one of the a classic case of the movies where he's just like, oh, my God, you know what? We're going to have him running. And then the braces just like break off and look amazing because this isn't real life. This is spectacular, spectacular. This is just for the gag and the bit. Like everything about this movie is in service of the visual and the kind of like, you know, the, the iconic scene of Jenny with the guitar. It's a great visual. Like everything looks good, but like, there are so many gags in this movie that I'm just like, I, Jesus Christ, the beginning, the fucking feather, and the tracking shot of the feather going down and falling on him. 
it's just too much. It's just yeah. it's 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 what what am I supposed to learn from from Forrest Gump? Tell me, like what what journey has he gone on? What that we, that we should. I don't know, not judge someone for being like not as smart as everyone else. I guess this is this movie is like manipulating the audience into being like, see, even someone who isn't smart is actually really smart. What? I don't like what? Louis, I think that you've already forgotten that life is like a box of chocolates. Get it! You never know. What <laughs> I'm gonna fucking kill you. You're gonna get yeah, I think it's perfectly fine to to dislike. I think I think it's perfectly, you know, John Waters is in the right to hate Forrest Gump. I totally understand why. Rom- romanticizing the South in this way. Romanticizing the South this way. I, I'm going to go even further than you and say everything past Castaway is would would fill my criteria for one star review. Polar Express, Beowulf. Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, Allied, Welcome to Arwen, The Witches, Pinocchio. I don't like any of it. I don't wow. think I don't think any of it has truly pushed the game in a direction that he thinks it's going in. Sadly, if I had to put money behind somebody that was innovating this motion capture stuff, it would be fucking and this <laughs> is just this is just stuff. This yeah. like I don't know. I found a lot of this hard to get through. Um, yeah, but you're right. You're right. <laughs> it is just it. It is just stuff. It is just from the from the director of Forrest Gump and, and Castaway. And it's so funny because he talks about how like story is the thing for him, character is the thing for him. Liar. But I, I yeah. I would say watch th- watch this with that eye and think like this like nothing. This looks like nothing other than a guy playing with his toys. Yes. To me. And and even w- even when he like tries and gets close, I'll give, you know, I'll give like a good job award to Allied. Yeah, Where, I think w- Allied is the one sh- trying to shine stars yeah. from <laughs> but but none for Gretchen Wiener. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's best we move into our five star reviews because I am maybe being more negative than I planned. So let's go to the five star. <laughs> Again, there's a lot to choose from, I think. There is like a, a some a lot of fun good stuff here as well. So it's like it really is like maybe our most mixed reviews. They're mixed. Uh, they are very mixed. Um my pick has to be 1992's Death Becomes Her. I mean, I thought I thought it was going to be this. This makes me very happy. It's just whereas in The Walk nothing is working in this movie Everything is working. It looks incredible. The performance, perfect. The writing, like, unparalleled. Everything just fucking works. Even beyond literally the icons and stars of Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, fucking, what's his name? Um, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, who is the biggest surprise in the world. You know whose role this was originally? Kevin Kline's. Uh, Can you imagine? can Can you imagine if this was Kevin Kline? But... I think Zemeckis gets like maybe a career best performance out of Bruce Willis. Absolutely. She's in the morgue. <laughs> She's going to be furious. Like it's the performances are just so, so uh, even my God, 
Goldie Hawn hasn't given as many opportunities to be this fucking fierce and yes. amazing. And she fucking nails it front to back. I also think what's amazing about this movie is even even without the special effects, which are still so good, and mostly because a lot of them are physical. Yeah, they had to do blue screen over Meryl Streep's face. Yeah, they had to do like the blue screen in Goldie Hawn's stomach. But for the most part, a lot of that stuff is phys- like the stretching of the neck. And I mean, even the way that they, <laughs> in order to get Meryl Streep's breasts to move up into place they had <laughs> they had built a, a thing to do it and it didn't work right so they just had her makeup artist slide her hands under her shirt and do it incredible incredible and it's and such yet, a good effect you wouldn't have no idea it's an uh, speaking of that fucking scene isabella rossellini oh my Hiller. god oh my god who who like seamlessly has a body double in the movie and i never knew that until now like She's that is bo- oh, that is yeah. not her nude body I mean, yeah. I, every, everything about this movie is just so so good. I, if you are looking for the description of camp, here it is. Yes. Like, it's I, shocking. This movie was written by men. It is shocking. Shocking. <laughs> shocking. Um, I I th- I just don't have a single bad thing to say about it. Like. I know they there is like an ending that they redid. Yes. Um, there are some scenes that were cut. I know that the Tracy Allman's entire character was removed from the movie. But like it it just like once like the opening scene, it's pedal to the metal. You know, there is not a thing wasted. Um, everyone looks incredible. Everyone all the characters feel very um there's a lot of depth fully realized. Um I I and, and again, to be up against Meryl and Goldie Hawn, <laughs> Bruce Willis just is giving such a pitch perfect performance. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's so funny, too, because the film critics at the time, like it should tell you, most of the film critics were straight men. And so uh-huh. a lot of them were saying that there weren't characters there. The, the, a lot of them gave the negative or middling reviews because they felt that these two characters weren't real realistic. And I think these characters are so realistic, are so yes. so vapid and so mean, and so like the these are lived and breathed in performances of these like rotten, terrible people, and it's so good. I I do want to talk a little bit just real quick before we move on to my selection about Zemeckis's visual language because one of the things that he's mastered way more than anybody else has ever succeeded in, even I would say more so than his mentor steven spielberg is the moving master shot most of the times when you have a master shot it's there just for like coverage to show you everything that you you need in a scene before you go to close-ups or movement but his master shots are constantly moving and what they're usually doing is they're building visual inform they're pumping information into your eyesight so you can see what's going on and tells you a story. This movie has one of the best opening shots for that moving master because it starts in the sky and it scrolls down to a theater. Oh, you're seeing a theater. Oh, you're seeing uh, it's Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep's in a Broadway show. And then you're seeing people leave the Broadway show and discuss one of them saying, you know, like, oh, thank God you wanted to leave. And another person saying, 
a musical version of Sweet Bird of Youth. What were they thinking? And they throw their playbill onto the ground and somebody else steps on it in a puddle. And it tells you everything that you're starting in the heavens and she's going all the way down to the gutter. Also, what is it telling you about Madeline Ashton? Sweet Bird of Youth. Why? That is a Tennessee Williams play about a woman who wants to regain her youth. Boom. There's your fucking movie in the yeah. first shot. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. It's it. And it just doesn't let up. It doesn't let up. You know, it just um, first shot to last. It's just fully genius. The the madcap of them like coming to the house and, you know, Helen just died or, or Madeline has just died. And, you know, and then she fucking kills Helen. Like it's it's so, so good. It's just so so good. <laughs> Mad hell. <laughs> when when Madeline plans uh, Helen's death, the visual language of all of that going through the plan of yeah. pretending that you know to get her drunk and and it's so heightened and so comedic and so funny. And what's even great about that is there's a slight interesting reversal because really after uh, Goldie Hawn takes the potion you always see her in red and you always see Madeline in white and yeah. in the dream version of killing Madeline Madeline's in red and Helen's in white it's just it's little things like that it's so smart and such a good visual language that, you know that tells you things subconsciously without you even having to process them for yourselves absolutely this is pointless wait a minute wait a minute this is ridiculous we can't even hurt each other we can't even inflict pain pain i'll tell you about pain bobby o'brien scott hunter ernest renville that's pain i loved every one of them and they loved me i will not speak to you till you put your head on straight I'm also going around the same era because I do really think that that, you know, that bit of time is sort of unimpeachable when it comes to Robert Zemeckis in terms of both storytelling and special effects. And I'm going to go with 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, yes, had, had you not gone with Death Becomes Her, I would have changed it <laughs> because I like these movies both equally. But I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit holds up so well. Previously mentioned, it's a parody of film noirs or maybe not a parody, but a loving note to film noirs mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh it is about a detective eddie valiant who is played by i'm just gonna say it a very hot bob hoskins okay <laughs> and he is drawn into a murder mystery involving tunes now he doesn't work with cartoons anymore but by the way this is a reality in which cartoons coexist alongside people go with it they're they're actors they're actors <laughs> Ugh, you ever trying to eat with one um and essentially you know he gets drawn into this murder mystery you know stuff begets other stuff he is being hit on by roger rabbit's cartoon wife jessica rabbit who is maybe the sexiest cartoon ever committed Mm -hmm. to screen i mean when bob hoskins asked robert zemeckis what she was supposed to look like because he hadn't seen any of the renderings robert zemeckis told him Think of your dream woman and think sexier. And Bob Hoskins admitted when he saw the movie, she was sexier than he'd even imagined. (laughs) She's hot. She's hot. No wonder every drag queen wants to be her. You gotta have the rabbit to make the scam work. No, no, no. I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man. Looking at a woman looking the way you do. 
I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. And they get wrapped up with Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd. And Doom has a plan to not only end all of tunes in, from reality, but also bring the freeway to Los Angeles. And I'm going to spoiler alert this. Sorry, if you haven't seen Who From Roger Rabbit, maybe skip ahead five minutes. But Judge Doom's plan, he's the villain of the film, is that he is bought the red car and going to put a freeway through Los Angeles. We live in the reality where Judge Doom won. <laughs> we, we really do. We, I mean, it's literally about like, corporate fuckery and like taking i mean even watching the movie now it's like we don't have cartoons like that we don't have uh where are the looney tunes now they are they are in space jam fuck all yeah you know like um yeah it's 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 different we do have cartoons i know they exist but, the, <laughs> but we don't have. You heard it here first. Louis does no longer believe in the existence of cartoons. Cartoons aren't real. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, even but even the, the this movie. We talked a little bit about this movie both in our, I mean, our previous episode and in um, the Renaissance episode. Like this movie, Disney was like, okay, we need to see if people want to watch cartoons. Right. Like, let's figure this out. And if people do like this movie, we will continue to give money to make cartoons because at the time, a lot of their money was coming from live action. Um, And this movie, like, I don't think they understood how much people fucking love their car- their characters. And not only their characters, but also the Looney Tunes characters. And, and to see Daffy and Donald playing pianos together and doing the bit together to see bugs and Mickey falling from the sky. You know, it that is fucking multiverse of madness shit. Like (laughs) that they had no, they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea what they were about to unleash. And there's, you know, like we probably will never see that shit again. You know, no, absolutely not. Like company, company synergy. And like, unless, unless those companies buy each other, which they're all going to do at some point. Warner Brother Disney. (laughs) I would like to say, by the way, um, there have been reports that the uh, budget of this movie ballooned to about 70 million. It actually was only about 50 million. um, And it was still the the most expensive movie of the eighties. I mean, the fucking Amazon Lord of the Rings show is $750 million a season. So just to give you an idea of where we are. And then this movie earned $351.5 million. So it was a huge, huge hit. And yet Disney has never really been able to like get it together to, to do something like this again. I also think it is the most impressive combination of animation and live action that we've ever seen and most likely we'll ever see again i mean you look at something like chippendales rescue rangers which just came out on disney plus which is attempting to do something very similar right and it's fine and it looks good but it's not this and i think that's you know the the faith that this has in its audience the fact that it allows itself to be so adult and so funny i mean there are fucking sex jokes in this movie there i mean my favorite joke when i was a kid was when the weasel reached into uh reached into jessica rabbit's uh bra to try and like frisk her and gets a bear trap and eddie leans over and says nice booby trap Uh uh-huh the most hilarious joke to me is like a six-year-old like right right i mean this movie also just does not have a cynical bone in it yeah you know whereas um rescue rangers you know the the reboot movie thing 
I th- it's still it's this has it was made by millennials, you know, yes. like it, it's like that that sincerity is not there. The, the uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is just such a love letter to it was that sneaking in jokes for adults, you know, visual gags, um, and just like fun and also fucking scary. Like, yeah, it's the, the, that that Judge Doom shit. <laughs> I I also just a real quick revisit the moving master shot towards the end of the movie. Uh, Eddie performs a song and dance musical number in order to distract the weasels in order to make them laugh until they die, essentially. And what sets that up so brilliantly is earlier in the film, there's a moment where he's going through photos and sees his dead brother who a tune had killed by dropping a piano on his head, which is so funny and dark. And he starts drinking and the camera moves from him to the photos on his desk of him and his brother opening their detective agency to them graduating from the police academy with all clown noses to them and their father as part of a traveling circus. And it's the really the only time it's mentioned in the movie. So when you get to this end scene, the only information you have is this one photo that Eddie has all of this circus talent and he puts it to such good use. And it's brilliant because it truly trusts the audience to have paid attention to the things that they're supposed to be paying attention to in the film. I, I think it's just really well directed, really well put together and just all around like Robert Zemeckis specialty. (laughs) Um, was, Was there anything else that you saw that you particularly loved? Um, I think I Want to Hold Your Hand is a fun watch um, from his early days. Um, Romancing the Stone, super fun. Uh, You really can't go wrong with Kathleen Turner. Yes. (laughs) Just really can't. Um, Back to the Future is like a fun kind of like... Yeah, all three. I will watch Back to the Future. I will watch any Back to the Future if it's on TV. But it's also one of those ones that I feel like I'm never like... Oh my god, I want to watch Back to the Future. Like I'm never like sliding it into Right. We're gonna fucking see it on Broadway soon enough. Oh uh, yeah. And I mean, and once again, he co-wrote this the the book of that. So like Um, I we talked a lot about what lies beneath in our Michelle Pfeiffer episode. Yeah. That's some sexy fun. I I think it's like, you know, you, silly, but like You made some hints that you maybe don't love contact, and that's fine if you don't. But Contact would definitely be in my five-star reviews. I really, I think it's such a touching movie about belief, not necessarily faith. And I like that there's those questions about faith in it because there's moments that like, like really, you know, she unstraps herself from the, the device because the metal that Matthew McConaughey gave her is floating away. And then the device destroys the chair that she was in and it would have killed her. And I- and, and I like that because it's like, is that faith? Is that religion? Does it matter if it is or not? Is it just chance? And it truly sort of doesn't matter because it fits either philosophy. I, I think my issue with contact is that like the movie has this character, um, whatever her name is, uh, Eleanor Arroway. Um, and she is like, I'm a scientist. I fax all these things. Um, and it's one thing to like have, a character. I mean, because the whole thing is like she's supposed to, you know, learn faith, learn in believing and whatever. But like, <laughs> to have her fucking boyfriend be yeah. Matthew McConaughey to be the one to be like, well, I didn't want you to fucking go to space because I want you here. And like, for him to be the one who like for whatever reason he's some fucking spiritual guru that the president is like, come on over to these meetings, bud. 
Like, I just think it's a little bit like they couldn't let this woman have it all. Why don't we do our mixed reviews review? My one star review was 2015's The Walk. And my one star review was 2018's Welcome to Marwin. My five star review was 1992's Death Becomes Her. And my five star review was 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) All right, let's get into the fast forward. Pinocchio out right now on Disney Plus. Boy, what a nothing it is. <laughs> I I, Tom Hanks yet again. Yeah. Oh boy, I watched him talk about like deepening Geppetto's story because you know what did they do? They gave him a dead wife. Wow. Oh, wow. So deep. Wow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's you know Jiminy Cricket voice is this? It's me, Jiminy Cricket. A oh, great. Why didn't they hire me? I could do this for two hours. I was just like, I, I can't stand this. I, I want to kick that cricket into space. Well, how do? Cricket's the name. Jiminy Cricket, to be precise. And I'm here to tell you one humdinger of a tale. I don't know that who wanted this. Don't know. I don't know. I mean, who I know are... who wanted it. Disney. They were like, print money for us. Right. I I just can't. Did Did you get a chance to watch it? No. Okay. No, I, I I was talking to a friend about this. I was like, how many of these adaptations have I watched? I watched Beauty and the Beast on a plane, I think. Uh, and I haven't seen any other ones. I didn't see Mulan, didn't see Lion King, didn't see Aladdin. I, it just hurts me too much. <laughs> I, I don't know that the, the Little Mermaid is coming next year. To me, you know, there will be some, it's actually something new, like, by, I'm sorry to say it, I'm not sorry to say it, fuck it, like, by having a black mermaid, like, it is different, it is, there is something more different to say, it's not just gonna fucking be, like, isn't the Lion King literally, imagine the Lion King, but make it look not fun. Right. Because it's all the same. Like, what, what? This, the other thing that drove me crazy in this is this is filled with that sort of family guy humor where not like par- not like gross or outlandish but the type of humor where it's like we're simply going to reference something else and yeah. you're going to laugh so like Geppetto is a clockmaker and all of his clocks are cuckoo clocks that are Toy Story and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and all these other things and I'm like why who's that for is that for little kids to just be like I recognize this other property in this property right. When he meets Keegan-Michael Key's character, Keegan-Michael Key's character makes a joke about, like, they need to give him a stage name. How about Chris Pine? No, that'll never work. It's like, who are these jokes for? Like, simply referencing something isn't funny. And I don't know why that has become such a staple of humor, just by being like, I can name a thing. Laugh. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm... It's really frustrating. I think Cynthia Revo is gorgeous in it, and I think she gets out pretty unscathed because she literally pops in for like three seconds and then fades out of the movie. Like literally, just fades out the window. And I w- I thought that they were gonna bring her back in the end, but literally the movie just stops. The movie just like ends. There's like a weird recap at the end. It's like these are all the adventures you went on. Huh? Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> And it just makes me so sad because it makes me think, and I I feel the same way that I felt at the end of the Tim Burton episode, which is, what do I want to see more from Robert Zemeckis? Nothing. I don't want to see any more Robert Zemeckis films. Shut it down. I think he should stop. I think 
the thing that he needs to do is if he truly believes that he is a storyteller and wants to foster these things, then put his money where his mouth is right. and, and put it towards young filmmakers who are pushing the envelope or coming up with new ideas and, and really trying to, to push cinema in another direction. I think what's really frustrating about doing this episode and finding out that he was so like, uh, like, independent film he i listened to interviews with him where he's like i've never made an independent film and it's like yeah because you're in love as much as you're a futurist when it comes to technology you're in love with the status quo yes and, and you want things to not change so much and the things that most independent films are attempting to do or the good ones at least is push the envelope in some direction shape form whether it's progressive whether it's you know visually they want to do something and Robert Zemeckis and I think it's become even more clear now that he's moved into remakes or making adaptations of documentaries that he just wants to present the same old and I would say Allied falls into that where he's like just trying to do Casablanca yeah and I I I couldn't have said it better it's it's kind of sad it's kind of like Flopville because I mean when you look at some his mentor Steven Spielberg, who is still firing on all cylinders, like and I is am... and is attempting to push the envelope in yes. different ways, like and even though Steven Spielberg remade fucking West Side Story, he remade it. You know, it wasn't just you know this little ratata like here's fucking Pinocchio again, and there's nothing new, nothing more to say, nothing interesting to say. Um, it's yeah, I. Where is our Back to the Future girl? Where is our Romancing the Stone girl? Like, I, the man who made Death Becomes Her <laughs> made Welcome to Marwen? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I mean, the, the, the man who made Who Framed Roger Rabbit remade Pinocchio. Like, and what? the witches. And the witches. Like, what? Why? Who are you? It's um, I, I, it really does for me feel like Hollywood says, "Oh, we need some whimsy. Let's just hire Zemeckis, and yeah. he'll make it look good." But like and, brand name whimsy, not even like <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It's like I can't even say it's like hot topic whimsy because that would be like giving him too much credit. It's like I don't know, fucking the Gap whimsy. Like yeah. it's just blah. Um, so to, to Robert, sweetie, if you're listening. Um, hang it up, babe. Yeah. Uh, you know, you had a good run, but then you had a very bad run. Uh, uh, and it's and it's been a while. It's been, it's been it's been twenty years. The millennium has not been kind. <laughs> no, no, it is not. Oh boy, I hate I hate ending an episode this way, and I feel like we rarely do. But it was funny because like I feel like this episode's been a long time coming. I feel like he's somebody who definitely deserves to be talked about. But baby, baby, baby. Listen, you know what? Like, that's the nature of the show. The reviews, they're mixed. And you know what? If if you want a good time, watch his older stuff. Yeah. There's there's certainly older things out there that you haven't watched. I would even say fucking watch used cars before watching his new stuff. Yeah, before watching the Wolf. Oh, and that's the, and that's the thing. You know, I've always said a remake doesn't harm the original. You know, it's not like wa- yeah. like him remaking the witches, him remaking Pinocchio does anything to the other version of the witches of Pinocchio. And I feel the very same way about his earlier career. Like, you know, this, this stuff, you know, back to the future two isn't a worse movie because he made 
flight. Right. So just watch Back to the Future 2. You know, yeah. that's... Yeah, have fun. Have fun. There's a lot of fun to have with Robert Zemeckis. Just... But be careful. Yeah. Be careful out there, listeners. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But I think that wraps up our good friend Robert Zemeckis. Sorry, Bob. Uh, but if you ever want to contact us and tell us how wrong we are, you can always tweet at us at, at the Mixed Reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in the Mixed Reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at the underscore mixed underscore reviews. And if you want to listen to our back catalog the way you've listened to this entire episode, you can always find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Audible, Amazon. We're on all the listening places. And if you could do me a huge favor, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating. Yes, five stars. Write us a little review. We'll read it on the show like we did at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. And if you guys have any like thoughts about our upcoming Patreon things, like we are all ears, um, we are here for you. But mostly for each other, like in contact. Oh, very good. All right. (laughs) We will see you all in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.